<clears throat> okay, recording. You have a story to tell, and maybe you've thought, I should start a podcast. Meet Anchor. It's a powerful app that lets you record a podcast anywhere and get it heard everywhere. All you need to do is download the free Anchor app and hit record. Just go to anchor.fm slash get started. Your story matters. Make a podcast with Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash get started. Great. I think we got it. What's up, guys? Welcome to this podcast. My name is Solomon Ali, at Solomon Ali NBA on Twitter, and I'm so happy to be joined by Kelly Eco of The Athletic. How you doing, man? Yo, what's good, bro? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks for coming on. So I wanted to bring you on to discuss your story on what went on behind the scenes of the James Harden trade. But first, I think listeners of the show will send me very angry emails and tweets if I start the show for the third consecutive week talking about James Harden because uh, <laughs> he's no longer on the team. Uh, let's talk about the Rockets first because they're winning a lot of basketball games. They've won six consecutive games. They're now seven and three since the James Harden trade. They're finally over 500. And here's the most impressive stat. They're, they are third in the league in defensive rating. That's insane. Before the season, I had them at like 15th in defensive rating and they're blowing my expectations out of the water. I mean, let's start there. Like, how the hell are they doing this? I think the, the first step to, I guess having a, a good defense is a complete buy-in, you know, from top to bottom. You see Stephen Salas, and it's pretty ironic because and I asked him this before because he was brought in, you know, on the backs of the Mavericks' historic season on offense. Like, they had the best offensive efficiency of all time. And with the roster that he was presented initially, I didn't think that – and I don't think anybody thought that this team would be as good defensive as they are, but – Lo and behold, he, he's, he has John Wall, Victor Oladipo, spearhead in the backcourt, two great individual defenders, two great team scheme, de, scheme defenders. Um, he has Jashan Tate, a rookie, undrafted rookie, who's, you know, stepped in and brought a sense of grit and grind. Um, he has Tucker, who is, you know, the Wally veteran who's always going to be there, who does the things that don't show up in the stat sheet. Um, he, he's willing to get down and dirty. And then you have Christian Wood, you know, the big free agent splash, who, while he was always known as a talented offensive player, you know, recently the biggest question was his defense. Could he defend well enough in a scheme to sustain him being on the floor for a long period of time? And early on the season, we saw Steven Salas and his teammates kind of mention that, hey, like, you have to be that vocal leader. You have to be the anchor of the defense. You see things that others don't. Because you're you're the you're, you're the last line of defense, and he's improved. He's been able to, you know, obviously playing in the drop scheme is kind of difficult because you have to gauge when to come out, when to stay back. Uh, whenever you're playing tricky girls like Damian Lillard, Steph Curry, you're gonna have to, you know, pick your poison in terms of showing and recovering. But to his credit, he's played really well uh, as a rim protector. He's improved. I think I wrote a story the other day where he was. Among, I think, the top seven rim protectors in terms of defending shots around six feet or closer, you know, the Rudy Gobert's, the Miles Turner's of the world, the, the Brooke Lopez's, he's up there. And I think Christian Wood's emergence as a two-way 
you know, two-way improvement, I think is the biggest factor to allowing the Rockets to play this kind of defense that they do. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned Steven Silas at the top there. And what's fascinating is he was brought in with this idea of, you're right, the historic offense under Rick Carlisle. And before he worked for Rick Carlisle, his reputation around the league was kind of like a defensive personnel guy. And he, when he got, when he got to Dallas, like he got, he got assigned this new role to head the offense. And I always thought he could do both. I just never thought he would be able to do it with this roster. This, I mean, nobody thought he'd be able to do it with this roster. A couple things stick out at me. Um, obviously this is the best perimeter defense they've had in years. And that starts with John Wall and Victor Oladipo. That duo is easily the best point of attack defense they've had this decade. And the Rockets are defending seven points per 100 possessions better when Victor Oladipo is on the floor. That's not surprising. He's always been a good defender. What's surprising is John Wall because his defense can really wax and wane depending on the season. I mean, the two years prior to him tearing his Achilles, he just looked so stiff out there defensively. And part of that might have been the bone spurs, right? Like he, he got rid of the bone spurs like a year ago and he says he feels great. But it's really incredible how well he's moving coming off the Achilles. I mean, he's just flying around the court on both ends. Like, he's turning every offensive possession he can into a fast break. He's getting to the rim at will. He's not a great finisher, but he's a good finisher. He has this quirky move where he brings the ball out and pretends like he's about to set the table on the offense, and then he crosses over instead, and it's really fun. I always enjoy when he does that. Um, defensively, there are possessions where, like, if you're not, like, an A-minus ball handler, he's just going to take the ball from you. And sometimes it doesn't even register as a steal. Like, he had a possession last night where he blocked Shea Gilgis-Alexander and just took the ball and started a break. Like, that's another thing about him. He's a great shot blocker for a guard. He's averaging close to a block a game, and he's always been able to do that. Uh, and I don't mean to turn this into a John Wall love fest, but, again, it's just so staggering to see him do all of this after a torn Achilles. Yeah, obviously it comes from his confidence and, and the work he's put in over the summer. You know, John Wall is somebody who's very high on himself. And as a guard, you know, he is someone who has been on those all defensive teams before because he, he's tenacious. He has the ability to stay with a lot of guards. He can defend multiple positions. He has incredible length or his size and he's, he's smart. He knows when to put his hands and when to stick his hands back out. Uh, he's good at communicating with Victor in the few games they've played together. Uh, they've done well in terms of disrupting opposing backcourts. Now, what I want to see is how long can they keep this up? You know, they, they, they played very well for almost about a month now. Um, but there will be games where they struggle. You know, you, they will have teams where who just come in and shoot the lights out and that's going to happen. But Steven Silas has shown that the team he's building and the identity he's presenting is defensive first. And that's going to go a long way with the guys in the roster. And it might go ways to helping their offense get up to, up to par. Yeah, can we talk about Jay Sean Tate for a second? Because what a find. I mean, probably one of the best finds of the offseason. This guy was undrafted playing in the NBL. Uh, Rafael St- Stone grabs him, gasses him up to Steven Silas, and he still surprises Silas's expectations to the point where he's a starter now. Like, not Eric Gordon, not Daniel House, Jay Sean f- Tate. And listen, it was a pretty gutsy move by Silas to start a rookie like that. Like, I'm not sure if I would have had the Stones to do that, but watching him on the floor, like, I get it. Like, this guy always seems to be in the right position defensively. Um, he moves his feet, draws charges, 
gets rebounds, and he's also a pretty capable passer when he wants to be. Like, it shouldn't surprise anyone to know uh, after watching him in the NBA like that he was actually a pretty uh, heavy offensive burden guy in, in Sydney. And he gets a lot of P.J. Tucker comparisons, and I don't think they're crazy. Like, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to realize that they're grooming him to be uh, the, the starting power forward on the team one day. Eventually, when P.J. isn't there anymore, whether that's at the deadline or in free agency. But, like, what an incredible story. I think for Jay Sean and players like him, you see he's a rookie, but he's not your average rookie in terms of he has that professional experience. He has four years of collegiate experience. He the style of play that he has been accustomed to in his career has been that bully ball, has been that ball of energy. I talked to guys who have played with him, and they said he's this is going to be a menace. He's going to piss you off if you're going against him because he does not quit. And that's one thing that drew him into Steven Silas and kind of sparked him to put him in the starting line. Because you don't see that every day, an undrafted rookie you know, starting for an NBA team. It just doesn't happen. Um, but where the Rockets are right now, they need all the help they can get. They need all the culture and, and identity and, and tenacity they can get. And Jay Sean brings all that and more. He's, he's sturdy. He, he, he wants, he needs to cut down some of the fouls. But as far as being a perimeter, you know, deterrent, he's really good. And, and, it, and it's only his first year. Yeah, and again, like at the beginning of the season, we were talking about the debate at starting small forward was going to be Eric Gordon or Daniel House. And he just usurped both those guys to take that spot. And that's what's most impressive to me. And like, um, that, that first press conference was in the preseason where like uh, the Rockets had a bunch of guys out and, you know, Steven Silas goes ahead and says that Jay Sean Tate was starting, not Ben McLemore, which was who we all thought was going to get that spot. But Jay Sean Tate, I mean, it was just such a quick, a quick turn there. I, I don't think anyone thought that was going to be the case at all. I mean, I didn't think anyone thought that he would get minutes this year. Like I thought, you know, I thought Jay Sean Tate was going to be a back of the back of the bench kind of guy, and he's been. I mean, he's a starter now. It's 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 really crazy. This episode is brought to you by Cox Home Life. Cox helps make your home smarter and your life easier. And now you can use your Contour voice remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox voice remote and watch them while you're in the house. If you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Say, show me my driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash thisishome. So you talked about it a little bit. Uh, I got a lot of crap from Rockets fans for saying Christian Wood was pretty bad defensively pre-injury. And um, I said that because up until that point, he was pretty bad by the eye test and by the numbers. He just looked completely lost out there. And perhaps a, a, that's a lot of that is because of the last lack of practice time and the weirdness that surrounded James Harden's departure. That's all well and good. But here's the thing. Like, Houston was defending almost 12 points per 100 possessions better when Wood was on the bench. And I say all that to say, I'll give him his credit. He's been really attentive as a rip protector since he's returned from injury. 
He's blocking shots at the rim. He's staying in position. He's moving his feet. And over the last three games, the Rockets have been 17 points per 100 possessions better with Christian Wood on the floor defensively. They're like a 93 defensive rating. That's incredible. Obviously, it's not going to stay that way uh, throughout the course of the season. But what, when it is that high, you're doing something right. And he's been better at, on that end as of late. I, I have to give him credit. Yeah, so concerning Wood, I think the biggest thing for him, the next stride is getting stronger in his base. I think it was it was last night where early on the Thunder, even though they got blown out, Horford was just did not he was not afraid to just put his shoulder in his chest and go at him like three or four times. And I think he does have a, a tendency to kind of be a bit behind in terms of like like if he's behind the defense, he needs to catch up, you know, get back in the scheme. But yeah, I think Wood is is really improved over the last couple of weeks. It, it, it helps when your big man is able to use his length because he's incredibly, you know, long in terms of being able to show his hands contest without jumping. That's a that, that's a big underrated part of his game. Um, where I want to see him take that next step, of course, is getting stronger, getting a sturdier base, but also being more vocal. You know, you 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 want your big man, especially your free agent splash. You want somebody that can bring the defense in together. It's not going to be Tucker every time who's going to be – because his voice is already raspy as is, which is like mine. So you need someone like Christian, Christian Wood who's going to be yelling, you know, on the floor saying, give me that shit, or whatever, you know, calling out coverages, calling out sequences. He needs to be that guy to take him to the next level because if he can become a two-way, a legit two-way force, the rocket ceiling gets a little bit higher. Yeah, and you mentioned like his lack of physicality sometimes on the defensive end. What's what's funny is he he doesn't lack that physicality on the offensive end. Like I posted a clip yesterday where he got inside positioning on a big, uh, and he just dunked all over him. Like like yeah. it, he, they just can't handle him sometimes when he has a full head of steam towards the basket. Uh, and if he showed that on the defensive end at times, especially in those post positions that you're talking about, he can really step it up defensively. Um, and, I, and I guess we'll talk about Christian Woods' offense a little bit because I touched on it there before we get to your story. He is such a gifted natural scorer. And what's most impressive to me is that, uh, and I've been talking about this since the preseason, like his touch around the rim is so fluid. The various ways he finds to finish around the basket are impressive to me. The dunks, the layups, the floaters, sometimes hook shots. It's a package that's so rare for a big man and when you could combine that with his extremely impressive face-up game it's not it's not hard to see why he's averaging 23 points per game on nearly 63 percent true shooting like if he keeps this up and the Rockets are a playoff team in a month like he's going to get real all-star buzz I'm not sure if he'll make it because it's going to be really hard to crack the forward rotation in the Western Conference but he's going to make a lot of these coaches have to make some tough decisions and I, though I think the best way to describe him, he's awkwardly brilliant. Like, I I wrote this the other day. I've been the biggest haters of the per 36 stat. I think it's silly. I think it's people use it as a crutch a lot of times. But they got it right in Christian Wood's case. Like, when you look at his last stint with Detroit, you know, after on the, the German trade to Cleveland, he just looked a player that was ready to – Increases usage ten or fifteen points. Like he, he can do it all on the on the floor. He he's smart enough to handle those double teams and those traps like Clint Capella couldn't. You know, early on in his career, he has the spacing ability to to keep the floor. You know, 
you know, spread out as possible and allow those driving lanes for, for Victor and John and also himself. He's one of the best rollers in the game. Um, he has that feathery touch around the rim and he, he has that rare knack of getting a stop on one end and bringing the ball up the floor and trying to score on the other end. And more often than not, he actually does score or gets fouled or something. He's just a productive player. Uh, he scored, what was it, 20 points in all but one of his games this season? Like, coming in, I didn't really see, I mean, I knew he was, he was, he was a solid player, but I didn't, I didn't see this. I didn't see this at all. Um, and credit to the Rockets for, for, for pulling the trigger and, and being on him for so long because he has been a Rockets target for a really long time. And, and you're seeing kind of why he's been able to do that. Now, where I want to see them progress offensively is obviously whenever there are times where he's a bit hesitant. Uh, he does know that opposing centers know that he can pull that trigger from three, but sometimes he has the shot and he, and he doesn't shoot it or he waits too long and, you know, gets clumsy feet and the pain for travels and turnovers. But, uh, I think from what he's done so far, it's been well above expectations. Yeah, he does that thing where, like, he seems to be more comfortable taking those pull-up mid-range jumpers than those, you know, catch-and-shoot three-pointers. Like, he'll take a dribble in and take the mid-range jumper. And sometimes you'd like to see him just take that three originally because he can shoot them. He has right. a good shot. And, um yeah, by the way, that per 36 stack going to be a double-edged sword. Like, you're right, it can be goofy at times, but, hey, I mean, it found us uh Christian Wood, Paul Millsap, Fred Van Vliet. Uh, I think Clint Capella was a per 36 stat darling, like, there, there are. It has the success stories. It can, it can, it can be goofy. I agree with you, but you know, it, it's, there's also the other end of that. Um, okay, on to your story. So you got together with Sam Amick a couple weeks ago and wrote this detailed story on what went on behind the scenes of, the, of James Harden's last days in Houston. Let's start with this press conference where Harden basically tells tells the media uh, he's done and this thing can't be fixed. So. The one thing you reveal in your story, which makes this presser make more sense in hindsight, is that by the time he approaches the podium, Harden is already aware that the Rockets are close to trading him. Was this kind of his way of burning the bridge so that they wouldn't turn back? Well, that's a good question. So it's it's two things. Obviously, they had the meeting um, prior, and they made the choice that he – shouldn't be you know, with the team moving forward. It was just too – at that point, it was it was clear that he had checked out mentally. He wasn't – he didn't want to be in Houston any longer. Uh, so this me- this meeting is the one you're talking about with John Wall and Boogie Cousins. Yeah, he, he, he – his body language was off. His stats were down. You know, he had, he had to – they had to make a decision. But when he did have that press conference, he knew that the deal was closed, like, the, the deal, I heard that the, they almost made the, 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 pull the trigger before the game. Like that, it was already at the finish line, you know, by the time he already, uh, got up to speak. So I wouldn't say it fast tracked it because I don't think the Rockets were any more motivated by that, that, you know, that stunt. But, you know, the deal was already close before he even got up there. So, um, it looked good for camera. I mean, it was, it was, it was all over ESPN. It was all over every every network for what like twelve hours. Um, but yeah, I do think it was such a jarring moment because you know James, he's a reserved guy. He, he never, he rarely has outbursts like that. Like the only other time I've seen him make that kind of comment is after the Clippers game where he, he was complaining about the, the some of the calls. Uh, the, the the thing about Giannis, the comparison and the, the seven foot that can dunk. 
he doesn't he's he's a very cool and collected person. He's an immediate train. He doesn't he knows exactly what to say and when to say it. And that was just, you know, the the, the nail in the coffin of his time in Houston. Yeah, and the McHale thing was also surprising in, in the moment yeah, when the, I yeah, Mikhail, yeah, the McHale thing, I forgot that. Yeah, the McHale, that was crazy. Yeah, again, like it's like a handful of moments. You're right. They always stick out when he when he has one of these. And this yeah. was definitely one of those that's like, what? What did he just say? And it's like <laughs> you almost have to like rewind the tape if you're recording the press conference to make sure you heard it and right. It, it's, so, it's so weird. It's so weird because, you know, we're, we're obviously not – like if that wasn't – if that was before COVID and we were on the locker room, that would have been crazy. Because I don't yeah. think he would have said that – I don't think he would have said that if people were – you know – Cause you know how a polo game is. People want to cry in the locker room. I don't think you would, it, it wouldn't have had the same effect if people were in the locker room, you know, surrounded him as they usually do. So I think the Zoom thing, it made it that much more, you know, impactful. Yeah. And, and there would have been a follow up for sure in the locker room, whereas he could just walk away in a Zoom yeah. presser. Like yeah. it did, that, that's a, that's a great point you make. Um, by the way, any idea why Harden decides to start the season giving his full effort and then after he tweaks his ankle against Sacramento, he seems to let his foot off the gas all at once? Like, was he aware that trade t- talks were heating up even then or was that just his way of s- accelerating them? Um, so by the time he had gotten hurt, I think, I don't know, I mean, if I'm James if, and I get hurt, I don't want to get hurt again because that might, you know, deter teams from trading for you. You, know, you never know. So I do think that he didn't want to he really didn't want to prolong the situation any more than it needed to be. Like he he had told Steven Silas before that, you know, he wants I want you to coach me. Don't want you to, you know, be wary of the fact that that I want to be gone. Like just do your job. Like he because he supports him. But I think as time went on, <clears throat> you as a player that wants to be out, you kind of get agitated, if that makes sense. And we've seen it with every star. Like, every one of those trade sagas starts out one way, and at, at the finish line, it just picks up steam really quickly. Like, just want to get out. So I do think that a lot of things played into James' decision to kind of take himself out of the game. But for a group of guys that, you know, have a lot of tips on their shoulders, you know, John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins, um, Jason Tate, Eric Gordon to an extent, that was kind of a slap in the face to them. Like, you had just said, you know, and it could have been, li- it was probably lip service, but I mean, it was lip service, but he said that this, this group could be really special. And maybe he meant without him. You know, who knows? Like, maybe when he said that about the Rockets could be really special, maybe he was talking about them on their own. Who knows? But, um, yeah, it was just a weird, it was just a weird vibe and a weird situation overall, which is how it kind of fizzled out at the end for his, his career in Houston. Yeah, what's interesting is when I was reading your story, I, I initially got the sense that this meeting with, with Cousins and Wall, where they spoke up about his lack of effort, his lack of commitment, I initially thought that was after the press conference. So if that was before the press conference, it, that, that's, it just makes it, it adds another layer to the story. Um, yeah. So Rafael Stone comes out in a press conference the next day and swears that Harden's presser had nothing to do with the timing of the yeah. trade. Yeah. Yeah. And Houston had already made up their mind to trade Harden by the time the season started. I guess my question is on that second point, do you believe him? In terms of the, the media? Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I, I don't think, 
I don't think, and Rafael's a smart guy. I don't think he was moved by, I mean, they probably didn't appreciate it like that. No, I know they didn't appreciate it. Um, but I don't think, no, I don't think it moved them anymore to, to get a deal done. It was just like they had already known, you know, a deal was close. So that's just like, whatever. <laughs> but it's, it was, it was just weird. Like it was pretty unnecessary if you, in terms of, I guess, approach. Like, but, um, no, I don't think it, it pushed them anymore to get the deal done. I don't think so. So you think they, they were already planning to, to trade him by the time the season started and that they had no inkling or hope that they could keep him? Well, well, see, the thing, the thing is of that, about that with teams is they, they came in truly believing that, you know, they were going to try and fix things like similar to the, to the Deshaun Watson stuff. Um, as an organization, knowing that your star player wants out, you don't just bend at the knee immediately. You know, you have to, there are things you have to do before you get to that point of trading a superstar because you have to think about everything that goes into a superstar's presence in an organization. It's a lot. So, yeah, I think the Rockets, at one point, they, they believed in their heart of hearts that he would give them a chance. You know, a, a year, maybe. Just to see how it works with Steven Silas, see how it works with you know John Wall and, and the new guys and the new system, kind of make things easier for himself. I think the whole point of Houston's thought process was if you play, if you buy into what Steven Silas is doing and you relinquish five to eight percent of the, the control you're used to, they can be that much better of a basketball team. So so yeah, I I do think that. You know, they wanted him to stay, but as time goes on, realism kicks in, reality checks kick in, and if teams are hitting you up with attractive offers, at some point, you, you know, you gotta be smart and do what's best for your organization. You know, it's better to, it's better to move on from a toxic situation, even if you're not gonna get an equal value, because you never will get equal value from a superstar. You just never will. And you have to think about it as a franchise, if you've enjoyed a superstar's talents, for almost a decade, you're not going to get equal value when he leaves. That's just not, that's just not how it works. Like you have to be smart. If it's a 60 cent on a dollar trade, I mean, it's better than you trying to make things work to the end and never works and you lose for nothing. Like you were never going to get a, a two to three all stars and like, no, like the victor and the four picks and the swap. That was a good, that was a good deal in terms of, um, flexibility and getting somebody who you can plug in and play that Steven Silas wants to play with. So, um, right. Yeah. I think the Rockets made the, the best choice that they felt and their decision for that move. So why this deal and not the Philly offer? That was a good question. Um, I don't know. I think the Philly offer you know, if they had brought in Ben, um, I think their defense would would have been just as good, if not better. But offensively, I, I it's a risk. Like you're taking a big swing because Philly is is a team that's specifically designed to mitigate Ben's. Offensive limitations. Now, granted, every team doesn't have a Joel Embiid. They don't have an offensive superstar like Joel Embiid at the center position. The Rockets have, you know, someone that can 
take that next step, but it's not that currently. But I think that the Simmons deal would have been a bit tricky. Would have made, it would have made the things a bit clogged because Ben and John kind of do the similar things. They want to get to the paint. Um, Christian likes to get in the paint. Like it would have been, it would have been, it would have been a mess, I think. Um, and I, I think that Steven Silas wanted Victor. Like he pushed for Victor, you know, in that sense. And he, he's someone who studies his game a lot and he, he loves how he can be impactful on both ends of the floor and he doesn't have to hamper your, hamper your spacing. So I think that's why they did that deal. And I'm not sure if, if the Rockets would have those pick swaps and if, I don't think that would have been on the table either. So I think the Brooklyn deal, that's why they went that route because of the flexibility. Because if, if Victor leaves, he leaves. Like it, I don't think the Rockets are in a position or a team that, you know, obviously they, they want to keep Victor, but if next summer comes and he goes to wherever, not, it, it won't be like the, the, it's not like the James thing, like where you're like, oh my God, what was me? You know, if, if, if he goes, he goes. Like I think that's how, that's how they see it. Um, so I think that their, their plan is to just see how this thing goes. You know, is, Victor is a good player. Um, he's coming off a long-term injury. So is John. I think this, this year is about evaluating, um, and seeing where things go from there. Yeah, I agree on the flexibility front. I think that's why they chose to give up the second round pick and pick, uh, Oladipo over Levert. It's, it's the contract situation, right? Like I think Oladipo gives you the flexibility to, you know, open up some room this summer if you decide to part ways or if it doesn't work out. I mean, or if it does work out, I mean, you can bring him back for a good deal. I think they're, I think they're, I, to be clear, I think there's a deal, there's a number there that the, the Rockets aren't willing to touch. Now, what the market dictates for Odebo is going to be interesting because I, I, I do think he's going to be demanding that number. Like, I, I think he's going to get a max offer. And I'm, I'm not sure if Houston is willing to give up a max deal for Victor Odebo right now. Uh, we'll see, I guess. So in your story, you talk about Harden's attachment to Maury and D'Antoni. And I don't want to get on my soapbox here, but this is something I've been yelling about on this podcast for years. Like, the synergy between those three was real. And Harden talked about it on the record all the time. And we saw it up in clo- up close and personal when we were in the locker room. Even in his first press conference in Brooklyn, Harden talks about the departure of those two guys playing a key role in his trade request. And in your story, it says Harden made the trade request after the Rockets had hired Stephen Silas. It does seem kind of too much of a coincidence that that's also the same day that the news broke about Maury signing with the Sixers. Let me ask you this. Like, do you think it was a coincidence? Is it possible at all that Harden saw Daryl take the job in Philly and decide it's time for me to move on as well? Yeah, because if you're James Harden and you were brought in by Daryl, you you came in as a, you know, a really good six man who was presented with the idea of transforming your talents to a superstar player or future Hall of Famer. Now, for Eight nine years, you were crafted. You were put in a position to succeed. Your own, you you developed your own skills as well. You furthered your skills. Uh, you won an MVP. You came close to the NBA Finals. You know you had your fair share of wins. You had your fair share of losses. Now, Mike D'Antoni is gone. You know the guy who you loved. He said because he he lets you do whatever he wants. Remember he said that as, he said that as a joke, but he wasn't he wasn't playing. That's what he meant. Um. Daryl's gone as well. As a star player, you have to realize, are you going to mortgage your future with your, like your, your NBA mortality? Because your career 
it's not it's not forever. Like you're thirty, you're thirty one now. Like time is ticking. There are only a couple of years left in your prime at that level. You want to maximize that window, and you know that a Kevin Durant, one of your closest friends, is on a pretty good team in Brooklyn, and you know b you want to play with him. So as as James Harden, of course you're going to evaluate whether this is the the direction you want to be in. You know, after you've won for so long. Or after you played that high level, high stakes basketball, you don't want to sit around and wait because the seasons are really long. Like you, like think about it. People always talk about playoff basketball. Oh, they'll be back next year. You know how long it takes to get back to that point. It's a long time. Season is a grind. Like as a player, you don't always want to go through that with the same team if you know that there's a potentially better situation for you right now. So I think that also played a part into and and we're all humans. Like James isn't wedded to the Rockets. Like, he doesn't have to... I hate when people say, you know, of course, yeah, he left in a situation, but at the end of the day, he wanted something better for himself. He wanted to be in control of his own destiny, so I don't I don't fault him for, for wanting to do that. Now, of course, he could have done things a bit differently and said, you know, said the right things, but yeah, like, he wanted to control his narrative. He wanted a chance to win the championship, so he went to Brooklyn. Yeah, and I think... A lot of us in the media kind of saw it as a house of cards kind of thing once once Mike D'Antoni left. I, I mean, like, th- there seemed to be a giddiness among the fan base once Mike D'Antoni stepped down. But I think, you know, a lot of us who were paying attention to it were like, oh, no, <laughs> that that, me- that spells trouble. Because uh, Harden definitely appreciated having D'Antoni as a coach. And I, I think it definitely threw Maury off guard a little bit. And I think he made his decision shortly after to leave the franchise after – D'Antoni stepped down. I don't think that was a coincidence at all. I think it was very much, you know, a house of cards kind of situation. Um, last question and I'll let you go. We talked a lot about if this would have happened if the Rockets had not done this original Westbrook trade. Here's another question. Do you think this would have happened if the Rockets had extended Mike D'Antoni the summer before his contract expired? So are, are you saying this past season he would have played with, he would have played, he would have played with Russ as well? Like this? The same yeah. roster? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I still think he would have. I mean, I, if, I mean, it depends on Kevin Durant. If Kevin Durant doesn't go to Brooklyn, then maybe not. You know, if Kevin Durant's still in Oklahoma, I mean, in, in Golden State, then no, I think he stays. But I think the whole Brooklyn angle really opened a lot of people's eyes because, you know, it, for for these current players, it, it was their it was their Miami victory, it was their Boston. You know what I'm saying? It was right. that time for you to try and latch on and and see if you can get a ring, get a, get a ring because everyone else does it. So I think I think the Brooklyn thing really opened up their eyes. So I think if Mike had stayed, then he still would have wanted to go. Okay, fair enough. Um, well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Sure. Make sure to follow Kelly on Twitter uh, if you're not already doing so at Kelly Eco NBA. Make sure you subscribe to the Athletic. Um, and lastly, go read Kelly and Sam's story for yourself. It's called Inside the Final Days of the James Harden Era with the Houston Rockets. Uh, it's really good. A lot of juicy details in there if you want to go read up on that stuff. Um, Kelly, I'll talk to you down the road. Yes, sir.